turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I am reading out of the New King James Version of the Holy Scriptures. Romans chapter 8. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to read your word, to hear your word, for me to teach your word, for us to learn your word, and by your grace and through your spirit to apply your word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, this time in which we live in, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and give you glory in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for this time where our faith is being tested, that we may know, Lord, that you are present with us, you are working with us, you are working on us, and you are working through us. You promise never to leave us nor forsake us, and we thank you, Lord. You have our full attention all the more in these days. We thank you for technology that I can connect with your people in Strong Tower Bible Church and friends abroad. Lord, I pray that you would bless this stream, that it would not be disrupted. And I pray, Lord, that your people will get a word that they need in these unsure times, a sure word in these uncertain times. So bless them, Lord. Bless us. Bless me, because you're a great God who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ. And we give you the glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's an old saying that says, sometimes things don't hit home until they hit your home. And I have to say that's true as it pertains to the coronavirus. It's one thing to watch it on television or read about it on, on Twitter uh, or online. But it's something different when it impacts people that you actually know. And on Wednesday, the elders and I received an email from Elder Bob Van Fletteren asking us to pray for his wife, Kay, who had been displaying symptoms of the coronavirus. And she had went to take the test, but the results had not come back yet. And so um, it was a humble privilege to stand in the gap for my friends that I love and to ask the Lord to have mercy and to bring healing in their situation. And uh, we haven't heard word back yet, but we're waiting and we're believing God for a good report. And then on Thursday, um, I got a message from Stefan Parrish, who plays guitar in the worship team. And he told me and Pastor Jerry about uh, family members, five family members back in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, who um, had been hospitalized because of the coronavirus. And one of them had passed. And he is a bishop or was a bishop in a large church in Michigan. So these are, are real things happening to people that I know and people that I love and what impacts them impacts me. And so uh, it, it just touched my heart. It hurt my heart. But I just went to the Lord in prayer on their behalf, because what else can we do? We have to cast these cares on the Lord. And as it pertains to Kay and as it pertains to Stefan and his family, all these people love Jesus. And so just because you love Jesus doesn't mean that you won't be susceptible to the symptoms or even this virus itself. Just because you're young doesn't mean you won't be susceptible to this virus. Um, we're human, which means we're susceptible to this virus, which means we're all prone to suffering. And if it's not this virus, it's something else. It's high blood pressure, it's back pain, it's diabetes, it's this, it's that. So it won't be heaven down here until we get to heaven up there. It, it won't be perfect here 
because we're imperfect people living in an imperfect world full of imperfect systems and all kinds of things in the atmosphere and in the environment. But that's why we have hope for the world to come. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul is encouraging us about how to have hope, even in light of real suffering, even in light of real pain. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings, and he has an S on sufferings, plurality of sufferings. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So what I'm going through now can't be compared to what I'm going to receive in glory later. As a matter of fact, that's probably one of the things that gave him hope and encouragement while he was suffering on this side was the glory that was going to be revealed on the other side. Paul knew about suffering. And even when he met the Lord Jesus as his savior, Jesus had ordained in his future that there would be suffering. And here in America, that's usually not a part of the gospel that we like to talk about much. And that is having Jesus, but also going through hard times. Because of our prosperity in this country, we've been kind of lulled into a false dichotomy of thinking that if I have Jesus, Everything's going to be all right now. No, I have Jesus and everything is going to be all right. Definitely later and sometimes now. Having Jesus does not preclude us from suffering. The truth is having Jesus includes us with suffering. Philippians 1.29, Paul wrote that it has been granted to us not just to believe on Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. And all of us are going through various kinds of suffering in the earth. And so what God is trying to remind us is that this earth is not our home. Heaven, glory is our home. We're just passing through. So we've got to keep the right perspective, especially when we're dealing with pain. That trouble and pain won't last always. Something greater is coming. And that gives us hope while we're struggling now, while our loved ones may struggle and even die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. So Christians have hope. Paul has hope and he's trying to share that hope with us. And I want to begin reading at verse 31. And I'm going to read down to verse 39. Once again, reading from the New King James Version. Here's what Paul said to that church in Rome. And here's what he's saying to us. What then shall we say to these things? Stop and pause. I, I got to stop right there before I even go any further. When he talks about these things, what, what shall we say about these things? If you look to the verse before, verse 30, Paul says, Moreover, whom he, which is God, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's speaking of believers in Jesus Christ, that we were predestined to know the Lord. That before our destiny even started, God had determined what our destiny would be. 
He determined the destination and the destiny before we were ever born, before we ever thought about the Lord. In love, he chose us. He predestined us. So this is good news right here, that he chose me to choose him. Thank you, Lord. He didn't have to, but I'm so glad that he did. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that later. He predestined us. He called us. And when the Lord calls, we hear his voice and we respond. I didn't start off calling him. He started off calling me. Chris, come alive. Chris, come to me. Oh, this is good news. And then not only does he predestine and call me, but he also justifies me. He justifies us, which means he declares us righteous or perfect in the courts of heaven. And then he's also glorified us. And glorify is in the past tense, which means in the mind of God is already done. Glorified means I'm already seated with him in heavenly places. I'm already in heaven, even though in time and space, I'm not there yet. I'm already there in his mind. It's already done as far as God is concerned. So I'm waiting for my change to come. <laughs> and nothing's going to stop that change because once God says it is, it's done. So based on these things, that good news, that hope that we have in the gospel, that we're predestined, that we're called, that we're justified, that we're glorified. I, I could shut my Bible and, and end it right there, but it gets better. Oh, uh, watch this, y'all. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. <laughs> are you ready? Are you ready for this? I call your attention for verse 13 to, to verse 38 to get our focus for this message today. And in verse 38, Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. And he goes on to say, will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So as uh, one of my uh, friends like to say, Dr. Freddie Haynes, let me put a tag on this text and let's call this message, I am persuaded. 
I am persuaded. And I pray by the time this message is over, you will be persuaded if you aren't right now. And if you are, I pray that you will be all the more persuaded about the love of God that we have in Christ. What I just read to you were four rhetorical questions. Paul asked four rhetorical questions. And those questions are, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge? Who is he who condemns? And who shall separate us? Four questions, four rhetorical questions. Well, what is a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question is a question that is not meant to be answered. So a person asks a rhetorical question, but they're not looking for someone to answer it. Why? Because a rhetorical question is designed to make a statement. It's a question that makes a statement. Um, let's go back in our minds to the book of Job. In Job chapter 38, verse 4, God asked Job a question after he had been complaining for several chapters on why is this happening to me? I've been living upright. Why am I suffering? And he goes on and on and he says, if I had a chance to appeal or take my case to God, I would ask him, why am I going through what I'm going through? Well, God answers Job in Job chapter 38, verse four. And he says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? Since, since you've got the audacity, the gall and the gumption to question the sovereign king of creation who knows all things and was here before all things, who is perfect in all that he does, who is good, who is wise, who never does anything wrong. Job had the audacity to question God. So God showed up with a question for Job and it was rhetorical because there's no way Job could answer that question. In other words, God was making a statement with the question telling Job, shut up. Be quiet, which is why Job would eventually repent. God went on to ask Job a series, a, quite a few rhetorical questions to make a point, a statement of who God is and who Job is. That Job really can't even compare to God, so therefore he doesn't need to be questioning God. So God comes and he asks Job a couple of questions. We see this also in the New Testament where another man had the audacity to ask Jesus a question. And this was Pilate when Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? This is when Jesus was, after he had been falsely tried, he had been charged and condemned and on his way to be crucified. And he, Jesus spoke to Pilate about truth. Then Pilate flipped it around to Jesus and asked him, what is truth? And he wasn't expecting Jesus to answer the question. He was trying to make a statement to Jesus in his question by basically saying, there is no such thing as truth. Truth is relative. It, it can be whatever you want it to be. And coming from a Roman in, the, in that time and era, truth was relative just as much as truth is relative to many today. It's not objective, it's, it's whatever you feel. 
So when he asked Jesus the question, he wasn't expecting an answer. He was making a statement. But little did he know that the one he was questioning about truth was truth and is truth incarnate. And so a rhetorical question is designed to make a statement. So four times Paul asked, who? 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 Oh, you know, when I hear that, who? It makes me think of an owl. Yeah, yeah. Four times he says, who? 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 That's the sound an owl makes. And when I think about an owl, it's really appropriate. Because an owl is a bird that is known for being separated from other birds. It understands solitary spaces. That's, that's what an owl is. It understands solitary spaces. It's a solitary bird. Not only is a, an owl a solitary bird, it's a nocturnal bird, meaning that it functions best at night. And an owl has binocular vision. An owl can see great distances even at night. And then an owl, whenever you see an owl, an owl has an upright posture, an upright stance, almost majestic. And an owl is typified by wisdom. So when people associate this bird, they associate it with wisdom. And so when you watch cartoons or read books or, or look at artwork around the world, owls are symbolized or personified compared to wisdom. So when you put all these things together, this really speaks of the kind of Christian Paul was and the kinds of Christians that we're supposed to be. Why? Especially now, we're to be in this place that's solitary, you know, separated, isolated. Right now, we have to be inside. But then not only that, like owls, we need to be nocturnal. Meaning that in night seasons, we don't faint. In night seasons, we don't give up. Matter of fact, we still have vision in the night season. Why? Because we trust the God of the day, who's also the Lord of the night. And we have vision and we see hope even when things look hopeless to the naked eye. Not only that, because of the spirit of God, we stand upright. <laughs> we, we, we stand vertical. We stand strong. We stand majestically because of the God who's standing in us, the God who's standing for us. And not only that, we should be people who have wisdom right now. We trust God and we have wisdom, which means we're going to adhere to these restrictions in terms of going out and uh, uh, engaging in social uh, moments. We're, we're practicing social distance or, or physical distancing because it's the wise thing to do. We're going to keep washing our hands for at least 20 seconds and praying during that time. We're going to pray for people who are hurting. We're, we're going to exercise wisdom. So the question is, are there any owl Christians out there in the land? Are there any believers out there who have some of the characteristics of an owl? And another thing about owls, owls are cool. <laughs> you never see owls panicking. Ooh, I mean, owls are always cool. So when we look at these four rhetorical questions that begin with, Ooh, 
I pray that it will be used to help remind you of who you are in Christ and that you can be cool with it. So let's go with the first question. Paul says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Rhetorical question, meaning that it's making a statement. You really can't answer that because when we think about who God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? So us is in God. So when we think about anyone or anything that's coming against us, they're technically coming against God because we're in God and Christ is in us and Christ is in God and we're hidden in Christ who's hidden in God. All of that Colossians talks about. And so this is an encouragement about our position in the Lord because anyone who comes against God or comes against us who know the Lord, it's a futile attempt. It's a futile challenge to come against anyone who is in the Lord. If God is for us, and yes, he is, who can be against us? Like, like that who is, is like saying, who would dare? Who would dare try to come against us because we are in the Lord who is for us? We're on God's side. We're on the winning side. We're on God's team. And who would dare come against us. And it's really nothing good about us, nothing powerful about us, but it's all about the one that we're standing with and standing behind. <laughs> Who's going to come against him? It would be, it's a futile challenge. It would be like if I said, or, or let's say someone said, hey, Jewel, and Jewel is our worship leader, our worship director, who has a beautiful voice. And if someone said to her, hey, Jewel, Pastor Chris wants to challenge you to a singing contest. I can see Jewel. Now, now, she's very respectful of me and all that kind of stuff. But I can see her saying, who? <laughs> who? Because everybody who knows me knows I can't sing. I'm biblical. I make a joyful noise. But I cannot sing. So to challenge Jewel to a singing contest would be futile. If somebody said, uh, Hey, Elder Bob, we know that you do um, all of these uh, uh, Olympic events with older folks because Bob is pushing 60 and Bob does the pole vaulting and he does all of this stuff, man. So somebody said, hey, hey, Elder Bob, Pastor Chris wants to challenge you to the pole vault. I can hear Elder Bob saying, who? Because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Everybody know, man, I'm not doing no pole vaulting. That's futile to go against somebody who actually does that. Or if uh, someone said to Amari at church, one of our teens, hey, Amari, Pastor Chris challenges you to a race, to, to the 100-yard dash. I can see Amari saying, who? Pastor Chris? Want to try to race me? It doesn't make sense. Or if uh, somebody said, um, uh, Sister Tony Smith, uh, Pastor Chris challenges you to a bake-off. <laughs> and anybody who knows Tony knows that Tony can burn. She can bake. I can't bake anything. So it'd be futile to go against Tony. And I can see Tony like breaking it down saying, who? Who's challenging me? <laughs> and that's really how this is said here. 
when we think about who God is and how awesome and majestic and powerful, man, if we created a brand new language with a brand new uh, uh, alphabet, we still wouldn't have enough words to describe nor or define how great God is. It, it's just it's impossible to talk about how amazing and how powerful and lofty and transcendent he is. So someone coming against him, it's like God in heaven is saying, who? <laughs> Even the devil, who is a created being with power, still cannot compare to God. Who? Man, you got to be crazy to come against the Lord. And uh, the proof that God is for us, the proof is found in verse 32. Because if you ever wondered, here it is. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Number one, God didn't hold his son back. He didn't spare him. He didn't keep him. No, he delivered Jesus up. He gave Jesus for God so loved the world that he gave his most darling prized possession, his son that has been in his bosom from eternity past. He gave his best to us. He didn't hold Jesus back. And the Bible says that if God would give us Jesus, don't you think he would give us everything else that we need? So if I don't have it, that must mean that it's not a need or I'm just not to have it now. The God who gave me eternal life also promised to give me abundant life. The God who loves me said, I will supply your needs because if I gave you Jesus, why don't you think I'll give you everything else that you need when you need it? So that's why we should just sit back and rest and ask the question, who can be against us when God is for us? Let's go to the second question, which is in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, Satan brings charges against God's elect. Why? Because the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. The Bible also lets us know that he brings charges. He, he's an adversary. He is a liar. But when he talks to God about the things we do, he tells the truth. <laughs> you know, I saw Chris doing this. Chris was thinking that whatever. Uh, 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 Chris did that again. Because Satan can't read our mind, but he looks at our actions. He can feed our mind, but he can't read the mind. And so he accuses us to God. And he accuses us to other people through other people. So when you start accusing people of the wrong stuff that they do, Satan is using you, if not working through you, to do his business. That's what he does. He's an accuser of people. He brings charges against people. He's trying to put people down. He's trying to see people uh, uh, look bad and, and found guilty before God and others. But Paul is saying, who shall bring a charge? Because the enemy is going to bring them. But Paul still says, who? It's like Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. The weapon forms, but it's not going to prosper. The charges and the accusations come, but they're not going to register with God. Why? Because it says it is God who justifies. 
Paul has taken us into a celestial courtroom in glory where Satan, who still has access to God, we see it in the book of Job when he went before God to accuse Job to God. He still goes to God to accuse us to God. But I thank God for first John because it says that we have a defense lawyer in Jesus Christ who stands up on our behalf and says to the father, the charges are coming, but the charges are dismissed because every charge of guilt has been paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross. So as he's charging us and later we'll see condemning us, those charges do not stick because Jesus already paid for us to set us free and make us innocent. So who can bring a charge against someone who's already justified or declared righteous or innocent or perfect even in the eyes of God? I like how he says it is God who justifies, but he goes, uh, but, but in verse 33, before he even says that, he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We're elect. We've been elected. God chose us before we would ever think about choosing him. He chose us to choose him. And he elected us or predestined us before time began, before the world began, before we were ever created, before the devil was ever created, we were elected in the mind of God. So before the problem of sin came, the solution of the cross had already been determined because the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So the, the promise of the Messiah is not a response to sin. The promise of the Messiah comes before there ever was a thing called sin because God is not a God who reacts. He's a God who predetermines. He knows what you need before you need it. He's got the answer to every question and problem you will ever have before it happens. All that to say, he chose me. Before there was a world, before there were angels who fell to become demons and one became becoming a devil, he chose me, he elected me. And once he elects me, once he chooses you, predestines you, and adopts you as his son or daughter, nothing is ever going to change that. He will not unelect those he's elected. He will not, I'll make up a word because preachers can do that, unjustify you once he's justified you. He will not unglorify you once he's glorified you. We are safe and secure in the Lord. Nothing's going to separate us from God. My works didn't get me saved. And my works or lack thereof will not cause me to be unsaved. I'm saved by grace and I'm kept by the Lord. And that kind of grace and security, it doesn't make me lazy. It motivates me to live for him. Oh, man, this is good stuff here. Because in criminal court, you can't be charged a second time for a crime you were already acquitted of. So if I'm in criminal court and I'm guilty of something, but for some reason I got a good lawyer and he or she gets me off, I can't be tried again for what I was acquitted of in the court, in a criminal court of law. <laughs> the Lord got us off. We, we were guilty. You thought Johnny Cochran was something. No, Jesus Christ is something else. 
And he got guilty folks off. Why? Because he paid the penalty for our sin. He's not, he not only bailed us out, he also comes and he defends us in the courts of heaven. So when Satan comes to bring charges, Jesus is there to say, innocent, he's innocent, she's innocent, they're innocent. Why? Because I've justified them by my blood. So when Satan keeps bringing charges, remind him while you remind yourself that you've been justified by the Lord. Third question, we find that in verse 34, where Paul says, who is he who condemns? So this condemnation goes hand in hand with Satan, as well as people who want to put you down and judge you. Uh, people who shouldn't condemn us do. Yeah, because who has a right to condemn or judge other people and, 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 and as far as trying to put them down or, or, or condemn them to hell. When all of us are fallen short of the glory of God, all, all of us have imperfections and impediments in our eyes. Who are we to uh, 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 condemn other people? Listen to this. People who shouldn't condemn us do. But the God who could condemn us doesn't. This is why God is not like man and man is not like God. <laughs> the ones who shouldn't condemn us do and the one who could condemn us doesn't. Why? Because he loves us. Let me give you something here. Seven is the number of per perfection and completion. Mm -hmm. Seven. You know, God created the heavens and the earth seven days. So, so when you see in scripture seven, seven days in a week, it speaks of completion, perfection. But guess what the number eight represents? New beginnings. So if you come through seven and you add one more eight, now we have a new beginning. Let me give you two new beginnings right now to help you when you're dealing with condemnation. John chapter eight. There was a woman who was caught in adultery. Somehow they caught her and didn't catch the man. I don't know how you catch somebody with somebody, but you only got one person. It was a setup from the beginning because they were trying to condemn this woman and even use this to condemn Christ. And you know the story. I won't go into the whole story, but all of her uh, accusers left. The ones who tried to condemn her left. And Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, Lord, I don't know that they've gone. And Jesus went on to say to that woman, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. What's the point? The people who wanted to condemn her <clears throat> had no right to try to condemn her because they were just as sinful as she was. But the one who was perfect, who could have condemned her, didn't condemn her because he's full of grace. And he said to her, you're free to go. Hmm. New beginnings, no condemnation, which leads me now to Romans chapter 8. John 8, Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how long you've been doing it. I don't care who you've been doing it with and who you did it to, whatever. If you know the Lord, all of your sins have been atoned for, have been paid for, have been forgiven 
through the blood of Jesus. And he does not condemn you. He loves you and he graces you and he imputes or gives his righteousness to you. So if God doesn't condemn you, don't you dare let any devil from hell condemn you. And don't you let any human who's being used by the devil to bring condemnation or judgment in your life. Who are they? Who is the devil to condemn? No, no. If God doesn't condemn you, don't let them condemn you. And watch this. Don't you dare condemn yourself. Don't you put yourself down. Don't you damn or judge yourself. No, man, you're blessed. You're forgiven. You are highly favored. So start thinking about yourself the way God sees you, the way God thinks of you. You are not condemned. That shouldn't make you arrogant, mm -mm. but it ought to make you confident. These are some wonderful questions that Paul is asking. And then fourthly, Paul says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? shall separate us from the love of Christ. And when we read on, he, he names a bunch of things. And these things are that. They're things. They're not persons. He says who, person, but he names things. It's kind of like the coronavirus. It's a thing, but we've made it into a person. Especially black folks, we say, you ain't got that Rona, do you? We personify this thing. And many times when we go through our trials and tests, we personify, we, we, we give power to cancer. We give power to sickness. We, we make them as if they're people. No, they're things. But man, they can feel like people coming against us and beating at us and beating us down. Paul understood that, and he says, who? And he starts naming these things. Look at these things. Tribulation. Anybody know about tribulation? Distress. Anybody know about distress? Persecution. Famine. Nakedness. Peril. Peril. That word right there means serious and immediate danger. That's peril. If you're in peril, you're in immediate danger and serious danger. That's what we're all in right now. We're, we're in a time of peril. And then he goes on to say in verse 36, as it is written for your sake, for God's sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So he goes from hard things into death that many of us have been chosen by God to die for God. That's what that verse says in verse 36, that some of our destiny involves death, unrighteous death, unnecessary death, but it's ordained by God. The man writing this had his head cut off in a Roman jail. He was accounted as a sheep for the slaughter. But remember, he's the one who said uh, the sufferings we go through can't be compared to where we're going to. Oh, I like that. What we're going through can't be compared to where we're going to. And even though he would have his head cut off, 
He said in 2 Timothy 4, God's going to put a crown on my head. I can't wait to see the Lord because he's going to give me a crown because I love his appearing. Paul, how God going to put a crown on your head when your head's been cut off? Well, somewhere between when he breathed his last breath, right before his head was cut off. And when he opened up his eyes in glory, God put his head back on his glorified body. That's why death has lost its sting. The grave doesn't have any victory. What happens to our bodies here can't be compared to the glory we're going to get there. So when we have this kind of hope, why should we fear people, like Jesus said, who can only kill the body? Why should we fear anything that can only deal with the body? Those things can't change our soul's destination. Ah, Lord, help us to see this and live like this. Because someone may say, what's the worst thing that could happen to you right now? Somebody would say, well, the worst thing that could happen to me right now is that I get the coronavirus and I die. That's the worst thing that could happen to me right now. I get the coronavirus and I die. Well, that is not the worst thing that could happen to you. That is not the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you die without Jesus and you go to hell. That, 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 that's the worst thing that can happen to you. And for a Christian, the worst thing is not getting a virus or dying from a virus. Mm -mm. Watch this, watch this. The God I serve can protect me. He can protect you from getting this virus. He can protect you from getting cancer. He can protect you from getting hit by a car. He can protect you from this or from that. He can protect you. And he does, and he has been protecting all of us from danger seen and unseen. And he used to be praised for that. So he can and he does protect us. But guess what? I'm still going to die of something else. So even if I don't get the virus or you don't get the virus, you're still going to die of something. Why? We live in a fallen world and fallen bodies. The God I serve can heal me if I do get the virus. He can heal me if I get the flu. He can heal me if I get cancer. He can heal me of this. He can heal me of that. His name is Jehovah Rapha. So the God I serve can heal me. But guess what? Even if he does, I'm still going to die of something. I've had God heal me of different things throughout the years, different maladies and ailments. He's healed me. He's healed me with the aid of medicine. He's healed me apart from medicine. So when I'm asking God to heal myself or other people, I'm believing that he can do it because I've seen him do it, not only in my life, but in other people that I pray for. But guess what? When God heals people, they're still going to die of something else. Every person that Jesus raised from the dead, whether, excuse me, every person that Jesus healed, every person that Jesus healed, leprosy, blindness, deafness, whatever it was, they died of something. Every person he healed died. And even with Lazarus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But guess what? Lazarus still died sometime later. So healing is good in this life. But at best, it's temporal. Death for a Christian 
is a good thing. Because death is the doorway into glory. Death isn't a bad thing for a believer. It's a good thing. It's the launching pad to glory. That's why we grieve with hope when loved ones in the Lord pass away. Because we know they're alive in the presence of the Lord and we're going to see them again. So when Paul is saying, what can separate us? He names death. Death can't separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So the worst thing that could ever happen to a Christian is that we're separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And guess what? That will never happen. We will never be separated from God's love. So the worst thing that could happen to us can never happen to us. And if it could happen to us, guess what? It'd be hell. As a matter of fact, that's what hell is. Hell is a place where people live forever separated from the love of God. I know you think, yeah, yeah, it's the flames and the darkness and the pain and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Yes, that's true. But the thing that makes hell really bad it's not that stuff. It's the fact that the people there will never be able to experience nor enjoy the love of God. That's hell. And no one has to go there, even though we all deserve to go there. Because we've sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. But God loves us so much. As my friend Scott Rowley used to say, that Jesus would rather die than live without us. And Jesus came and made a way, offered his life on the cross, paid for our sins in full. And the way that we're saved, delivered, set free is to put our faith in him, to choose the one who chose us. Ah, if you don't know the Lord, today is the day of salvation. What did we learn today? In Romans chapter 8, Paul asked four rhetorical questions. And these questions were, they are, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge? Who is he who condemns? Who shall separate us? And these questions were designed to make a statement. And what is the response to these questions? Paul says, I'm persuaded because of the obvious truths that come from these questions. I'm now persuaded. And when you're persuaded, you're convinced, you're assured, you're, you're strengthened, you're, you're, you're solidified. And I pray that no matter what you go through, because after this, there'll be something else. There's always something. But no matter what you go through, Height, death, any created thing, nothing is able, nothing has the power to separate you from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, how he loves you and me. Y'all know, again, if, if I could sing, I would. But let me keep the preaching. When uh, we were growing up in Maryland, my mother 
Um, she bought a weather main and put it out in our front yard. And a, and a weather main is just a little contraption you put in the ground that when the wind blows, it spins around. Some of them have north, south, east, and west at the bottom. Ours had that, and it, it was made like a, a rooster. And it was like copper. And so, so here we are in the hood with this thing in the front yard. And the weather main had Williamson written across the, the, the body of that rooster. And so the wind would come and that thing would spin around and, and, and you know, Williamson would be spinning around. And sometimes I think maybe I should put a weather main in front of my house so that we know what the wind's doing outside. But in light of this message, rather than putting my name, Williamson, on the weather main out front, I would put God loves me on it. So that no matter how much the wind may blow, it shows me and it shows the world that God loves me. I don't know what you're going through. The wind's blowing. It's, it's crazy. But guess what? If he blows you to the east, he loves you. If the wind's blowing to the west, to the north, to the south, if it's crazy, if it's calm, God loves you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the word. Thank you that we're more than conquerors. Lord, may we be persuaded about that today. In Jesus' name, amen.